We're going to be in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13. It's going to be around page 1004 in your pew Bible, 1004, 1005, somewhere in there. But uh, your Bible open, something to write some notes on and something to write some notes with, you'll be in good shape today. Today, we're going to practice for time with our extended families at the holidays. We're going to practice that by talking about religion and politics. Aren't you so happy you came to church today? (laughs) Not many people like to debate, talk about politics these days with good reason. I'm one of them. There's a thousand things I'd rather do than argue over politics. I'd rather spend Christmas at the RMV. I'd rather be stuck in an elevator with a group of second graders learning to play their recorders. (laughs) I would rather drink decaf. I'm sorry, I got out of control there. My passion got the best of me. I apologize. Uh, It's not a fun thing, not a fun conversation at all, uh, especially with how sensitive things are and uh, how hot the political climate is right now. But even if I don't want to talk about it, I still need to know how to follow Jesus as a citizen of this country, as someone who lives under a president, who lives under authority. And Christians have always struggled with the right relationship between our faith and the state. In fact, if you know a little bit about Baptist history, which why should you, (laughs) you would know that we are here today because of a tussle between the church and the state in the late 1500s, a group of people got upset with the Church of England because of its corruption and moral filth. So two groups splintered out of the Church of England. One of those groups said, we are going to purify the church from within, going in a new direction. That group was called the Puritans. The other group said, no, there's no hope for this sinking ship. We're going to separate ourselves and start anew with new convictions, new authority. That group was called the separatists. And it's out of that separatist movement that the first Baptists emerged. They said uh, in, in the early 1600s, the Word of God is going to be our supreme authority. No king, no anybody else, just the Word of God. And we're going to practice a believer's baptism. And also, we're going to fight for religious liberty for all people. Religious liberty in the 1600s had a certain flavor to it. It was, uh, you can be free in your religion as long as you were this. Uh, It was not really a religious freedom. But Baptists fought hard for people to have the right to have a clear conscience before God, to choose to walk with Him out of the conviction of the Holy Spirit, not out of the coercion of the state. And so Baptists in the early 1600s made a strong argument for a church that was not run by the government, a government that was not run by the church and religious liberty for all. Uh, the man who wrote the first book in English on this matter is a guy named Thomas Helwes, and he was thrown in prison by ye old King James. And there he died in prison because of his argument for the freedom of man before God and the freedom of the church from the state. So you're in a Baptist church today that has its roots in this conflict between politics and church. The reality is this, even if I don't want to talk about politics, I still need to know how to live as a citizen and a follower of Jesus. And Jesus is not silent on this matter. Isn't it wonderful timing 
by our Lord that we would land on this passage today in which Jesus speaks to the implications of our faith and our place in politics right after the midterms, right at a time when we need this direction and we need some encouragement. Jesus helps us in the passage today to understand how it is that we follow him faithfully while also being good citizens of the countries in which we live. This is not just a teaching for American citizens. It's a teaching for all followers of Jesus in every country under every type of ruler. And so my goal today is to chart a course for you through challenging political times. I want to do this by sharing with you from our passage three ways that we follow Jesus in politics. Now, our passage today comes uh, on the heels of Jesus' showdown with some representatives from the Sanhedrin. If you haven't been with us, here's what you need to know about where we are in the Gospel of Mark. We are just days away from Christ's crucifixion. Now, we'll get there towards late March, but in terms of the story setting, we're just days away from Christ being crucified. He's in Jerusalem, and conflict is really reaching an apex. Everything's coming to a boiling point. On the day prior to the passage we're going to study today, Jesus walked into the temple, and he spoke judgment on people there who were doing business, who were muffling the, the message of hope and forgiveness found in God, and uh, who were turning the temple into according to Jesus' words, a den of robbers, a safe place for people who took advantage of others. Jesus turned over those tables, kicked their cash registers out, kicked the people out. And then the day after that is the passage we studied last week, the passage we study today. This was a bad day for Jesus. Every time he turned around, there's conflict coming at him. So the passage we looked at last week at the end of chapter 11, beginning of chapter 12, is Jesus and these power brokers called the Sanhedrin. And today, Jesus is confronted by another group, a pairing of groups that are an unlikely um, group of allies. And so, that's the setting. Jesus is in Jerusalem, conflict all around. I want you to follow along with me as we read Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. Real quick, who's the they in verse 13? They are those same power brokers that Jesus just went toe-to-toe with, chief priests, elders, teachers of the law. So they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. It is a brief passage with nuclear power in it. It has tremendous implications for the way you and I live and operate as followers of Jesus under the authority of a government. And so I want to show you in our passage today three ways we follow Jesus in tumultuous political times or great political times, 
doesn't matter. The principles apply no matter where we find ourselves. So if you're taking notes, first way we follow Jesus is this. Rest in Christ's sovereignty. Rest in Christ's sovereignty. Our scene opens with Jesus being approached by this combined group of Pharisees and Herodians. This is notable because everyone knows that Pharisees and Herodians hate each other. If you're not familiar so much with with the the New Testament setting, uh, there are various sects of Jews that live in and around Jerusalem at this time. Pharisees are one sect. Herodians are another sect. And there are others um, after them. But Pharisees and Herodians are really strange bedfellows. You wouldn't see them hobnobbing together on a regular basis. Pharisees, we might use the term conservative to describe them. They are pro-Israel and anti-Rome. They see their Roman overlords as oppressors, um, and they want Rome to be defeated and conquered. They want a Davidic leader uh, to take the helm. Herodians are also pro-Israel, but they've got a different flavor about them. They are pro-Rome. They think uh, that the the church should be in friendly cooperation with the government. And also that the leader to lead God's people should come from this Herodian dynasty, not this Davidic dynasty. Pharisees and Herodians are not pals. They don't love each other. And so when you see them coming towards you holding hands and smiling, you know trouble is afoot. This is not going to go well. And so they come to Jesus and they ask Him a question about taxes. Now here's what you have to know about this passage. If you don't get this right, you will get this passage entirely wrong. This is ultimately not a passage about taxes. It is not first and foremost a a passage about government or politics for that matter. This is a trap set by these religious opponents of Jesus. They want Him dead. Jesus calls them out for it. You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? They have no interest in knowing what Jesus has to say about taxes. Instead, they've schemed together to come up with a trick question. I love imagining what that conversation might have been like. Herodians and Pharisees meet on neutral ground. Hello, Herodian, I hate your guts. Hello, Pharisee, I hate your face. Very good, let us scheme. Here's what we will do. We will go to Jesus, and we will flatter him. We will pay him all kinds of compliments. We'll keep our fingers crossed because we don't really mean it. But we will flatter him to sort of win him our way, to bring down his defenses. And then we're going to ask him the trick question. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And so if Jesus says, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, then me, the Pharisee, I will be enraged and call him a blasphemer and I'll stir up all the people against him. If he says, no, don't pay your taxes, then you, Herodian, you get worked up and call him a traitor against the empire and then we can have our way with him. They want Jesus dead. They, they don't want his opinion. They want his blood. So this whole scene is a trap. It's an affront to his identity as the Messiah. Jesus threatens their power And they want him done with. This is not the first time these two groups have conspired together against Jesus. It goes all the way back to Mark chapter 3. 
Jesus is a unifier in this way. He brings opposing groups together who hate Him and who want Him dead. So, they ask Jesus the trick question. It's a yes or no question. And Jesus in all of His brilliance answers option three. Verse 16, He asks for a coin. They brought the coin and He asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. So again, let's not get lost yet in the Caesar and God line, but understand the big picture here. Here is Jesus in complete and total control of the scene. At no point is Jesus out of control. Not just here, but throughout His ministry. And in all the events leading up to His crucifixion, at no point is Jesus out of control. Meaning someone else gets the best of Him and they do with Him what they want on their own terms. Jesus goes to the cross on His own terms. And He's not outwitted by dim-witted Herodians and Pharisees. He isn't swindled by the Sanhedrin. Nothing about His betrayal and arrest and death is a surprise. Every detail related to your salvation is under Jesus' complete control. Every bit of it. And he won't let their schemes deter him or speed up the process. He shuts them down and he moves on about his preordained, pre planned path to work our salvation. When I read this passage, see how easily Jesus puts down the schemes of the wicked, I'm reminded of how good it is to belong to the God who's in complete control. You and I can rest in that sovereignty. He puts down the best laid plans of Herodians and Pharisees. And if he does that here, every place else and in our lives included, he's a God who's in control, a God who's to be trusted. But trust in God is not our default. Even as followers of Jesus Christ, it's hard for us to trust when crisis arises. Crisis arises and rather than resting in his sovereignty, we're frantic in our finiteness. It's hard for us to break free from worry and doubt and fear and all these things that come up whenever life turns to chaos. And we sing songs that are rich in God's sovereignty. And we read Scripture that testifies over and over to God's mighty acts on behalf of His people. And still, we don't rest. We panic. I'm so glad our projectors aren't working today because... I want to read to you a few of the words you sang this morning just by way of reminder of what we have declared about the power and the trustworthiness of our sovereign God. We opened by singing these words, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, strong defender of my weary heart, my sword to fight the cruel deceiver, my shield against his hateful darts, my song when enemies surround me, Anyone surrounded this morning? My hope when tides of sorrow rise. My joy when trials are abounding. Your faithfulness, my refuge in the night. From Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, we read this. I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the God you sing to, the God you trust in. Then we sang to each other, called to each other to sing together with me. How great is our God. Not how sketchy. Not how uh, trustworthy every now and then he is. 
How great is our God. Then we sang, who else commands all the hosts of heaven? Who else can make every king bow down? Who else can whisper and darkness trembles? Only a holy God. And then we sang, when on the day the great I am, the faithful and the true, the lamb who was for sinners slain is making all things new. Behold, our God shall live with us and be our steadfast light. And we shall ever his people be. All glory be to Christ. That's a, that's a future that's set, a destination on which the church is moving without stopping, without a hiccup. This is where we move together. And then the choir just sang these words to us, the earth will shake and tremble before him, chains will break as heaven and earth sing, holy is the name, holy is the name of Jesus. You've sung and read all morning long of the sovereignty of God. Do you trust him? Do you rest in the sovereignty you praise Him for? If you walked in here a frantic mess today, God's speaking to you. He's saying, trust me. Rest in me. I've got this. Rest does not require that we know the plan or even the outcome. Rest doesn't require that our crisis is resolved and then life is back to normal. Oh, I'll rest when everything's the way it should be. Rest is an acknowledgement of our weakness. And rest is a sign of our trust in God. So if I fully believe that the God who knows my name is the sovereign over creation, then I'm going to face crisis with a resolute confidence in Him. And if you're on the side of the omnipotent one, you have nothing to fear. If you're going to walk in the way of the God who has ordered and orchestrated all things and accomplishes everything according to his will with perfection, what do you have to tremble about? You can rest. Though the world rages around you, you can rest in the sovereignty of God. But you can't rest until he is the Lord of your life. There's no rest for those who have no covering for their sin, who don't know forgiveness, who have not been saved by Jesus Christ. And that's where all of us start this journey. All of us start as people without rest because of our sin. We've sinned against God, and the judgment against us is right and true. We are guilty of our sin. It doesn't matter how little you think your sin is. Our sin is profound and eternally damnable when our sin is against this holy, holy, holy God. There's not a thing you and I can do to fix that. Which is why it is good news that He is a God who is merciful and rich in compassion and loves you. And He sent His Son, Jesus is God in the flesh, who came and died in your place, paid the price for your sin because He loves you. He did that to rescue us from our sin. But we've got to trust in Him. We we can't trust in our religious deeds. We we can't try to work a way around faith in Christ. We can't be like Pharisees and Herodians and reject Him. We surrender everything to Him. That's how we rest in His sovereignty. He's not some situational cosmic fixer. He's the God of all creation who knows you by name. Do you know Him? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior? This is the day that you can find rest for the first time and forever by turning to Him in faith. So how do we operate in the current climate of things? We start with this declaration. 
God is sovereign, and I will rest in him. Rest in Christ's sovereignty. If you're taking notes, second way Jesus leads us through political times, submit to Caesar's authority. Didn't hear any amens or woohoos there, and that's okay because we need this. Submit to Caesar's authority. When I say Caesar this morning, sometimes I'll mean the actual Caesar. Sometimes I'll just mean whoever the ruler is over us. That's just rulers in general. So I'll let you sort out the context, but we need to submit to Caesar's authority. So let's spend some time with Jesus' line. Give to Caesar. What is Caesar's? His simple comment has profound implications for Christians under government. Now, to be sure, it's not the only place in the Bible where we find instructions for living as citizens of a country. Paul writes in Romans chapter 13. He also writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2. They give us instructions also, uh, explicit instructions there as to how we are to live as citizens within a government. But what we find in Paul and Peter's writings are the same things that we learn from Jesus. They don't create something new. Peter and Paul give us what Jesus has already given us as well. When Jesus tells us to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, he's telling us just pretty simply that Caesar is an authority that we must submit to. Now, when it comes to the topic of submission, we all get a little squeamish. We're all really quick to begin to try and qualify what submission is, or to argue why the concept of submission is outdated and we should do away with it, or how we can justify something different than what the Bible calls us to. In every place we talk about submission, we sort of, eh, we get uncomfortable with it. Here's my encouragement to you today. Let's just obey the simple word of Jesus on this. Let's not worry about hypotheticals. Let's not start with qualifying or justifying different behavior. Let's show our trust in Christ in our obedience to his word. To give to Caesar what is Caesar's, Jesus is telling us there is an authority, a government authority over us that we are underneath. That authority operates with a given authority. So Caesar does not have authority in and of himself. The authority of the government doesn't come necessarily, or doesn't come first and foremost from government documents. It comes from God who puts governments in place for the purpose of guiding and directing and helping people and carrying out justice and fairness for citizens. Government is put in place as a gift from God to people. That doesn't mean government always operates according to its God-given design or purpose. But that's not the issue at hand. The issue at hand is our submission. And for you and I to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, then we're to be a people who submit to our government. What does that submission look like? I want to give you, just from this directly from this passage, Real quick, I want to give you five ways that we submit to our government. This is not meant to be every way we should or we do, but from this one very simple line, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, there are some practical applications we can pull from it. How do we submit to our government? One, submission means obey the law. That's a pretty simple thing, but obeying law is a part of submitting to our government. That's how we give to Caesar what is Caesar's. So Christians would do well to remember that Though as we obey Jesus, or excuse me, as we obey Caesar, we're actually obeying Jesus who has told us to obey Caesar. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's means I'm obeying Jesus first and foremost. And so 
then my obedience to Caesar is a spiritual issue. It's a sanctification issue. If I don't obey the law, if I willingly break the law and claim the name of Christ, then I I may find myself in some tricky sanctification waters and have to address some issues in my life. So, the government is a given, has a given authority. It's put in place by God. Therefore, you and I submit to government by obeying the law. Here's another way we submit to our government, by paying taxes. When Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, he's talking about taxes in that specific instance. Holds up the coin. The question is about taxes in particular. And so, in saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, Jesus affirms the basic concept of paying taxes. Again, I I just want to give a word of caution here. This is where we might come up with uh, historical uh, scenarios, case studies. Well, what would you do in this? That's that's not the point of our discussion this morning. Let's just start by paying our taxes today. What does our government require of us right now? Christian, pay your taxes. Don't avoid that. Don't put it off. Don't delay it. Don't work. You don't have to like it, but you got to pay it. And Christ affirms a system in which government has the right to ask of taxes from its people. We submit by paying taxes. Here's a third way we submit. We submit by contributing to the success of our country. We contribute to the success of our country. We work for the success of our country in numerous ways. By paying taxes, by obeying the law, by working, by caring for our neighbors, by striving to better our communities, by being involved in the political process. Joshua worked for the good of Egypt. Daniel worked for the good of Babylon. We cannot be salt and light by being crummy citizens. We should work for the good of our country. Here's a fourth way you submit to your government. We submit by praying for our leaders. The whole ministry of Jesus is wrapped up in prayer. And Paul writes explicitly, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. He says we should pray for kings and all those in authority that we may live peacefully and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. So we should pray for our leaders. Even when we disagree with them, even when they aren't our representative party, we should pray for our leaders. We should pray for their souls, for their salvation. We should pray for their wisdom. We should pray for their rest. We should pray for their marriages. We should pray for their parenting. We should pray for more Christians to pursue political office and to be wise leaders. We should be fervent in our prayers for our political leaders. Also, prayer is another way in which we contribute to the success of our country. We've got to pray. Here's a fifth way we submit to our government. Maybe it's more of an attitude for us to keep in mind. Submission does not depend on the type of government or the character of the leader. Submission does not depend on the type of government or the character of the leader. The Caesar at the time Jesus gave these instructions was a man named Tiberius. He was not exactly a part of the moral majority. He was not a friend to the faith. He was a ruler who thought of himself as divine. And his successors, those who came after Tiberius, immediately after Tiberius, they were downright monsters. And the instructions of Jesus still stand. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. This instruction transcends leaders. So whether you have a a king, 
or you have a dictator, or you have a president, or you have a Caesar, whatever it is, you give. And it transcends governments. If you're in a representative republic, if you're in a monarchy, if you're in a socialist state, you give to Caesar what is Caesar's. This is not an instruction just for democracies in which we like the party in control. This is for every Christian in every nation on earth. Submission doesn't depend on the type of government or the character of the leader. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. It's important that you and I understand what that means and practice it. It's also important that we understand what it does not mean. And that's where Jesus gives us advice number third. <laughs> we're going to submit to Caesar and we're going to walk in God's supremacy. So if you're taking notes, third point, walk in God's supremacy. We're going to rest in his sovereignty, submit to Caesar's authority, walk in God's supremacy. So, Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. Now, uh, if you grabbed a sermon study guide this past week, it had a picture of the coin Jesus held in this story. Not the exact coin, it doesn't have Jesus' fingerprint on it, but we have a lot of these coins left over from this era of Roman history. On one side of the coin is a, a picture of the head, the face of Tiberius and it says on it, inscribed around his head, it says, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. On the other side of the coin is a picture of Tiberius sitting on a throne, and he's dressed in high priestly garments. And it says there, Pontiff Maximus, highest priest. In essence, the coin declared, in God we trust. Jesus holds up the coin. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. And in saying that, Jesus is stating explicitly, Caesar is not God. There is one God. His name's not Caesar. Giving to Caesar what is Caesar's means you don't give to Caesar what is God's. So Caesar can have his coin, but God gets your heart. Caesar gets the tax, but God gets your worship. It's a very sneaky thing Jesus does there in verse 17 with that statement. It doesn't matter what Caesar's coin says. It matters what God's word says. There is one God. It's not Caesar. So followers of Jesus under every kind of leader can take heart. Even Caesars have to bow to God. And so what does it look like for us to walk in God's supremacy as we go through political processes, as we submit to government? First, it means this. God gets our total allegiance. As a follower of Jesus Christ, God gets our total allegiance. God is our ultimate and all-encompassing Lord. And we don't bow down to anyone else. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3, we maintain first commandment allegiance no matter the price. If refusing to kneel and worship before a ruler means you go to the fiery furnace or you lose your head or you lose your family, we cling to Christ no matter what, no matter the cost. A common mistake with this passage is for us to conclude that Jesus is saying that there are some things that belong in a Caesar box and there's other things 
that belong in a God box. So here's this separation. And so Caesar gets to do whatever he wants, say whatever he wants over here, and then over here is God's stuff as well. But that's not what Jesus does in this passage at all. For the follower of Jesus Christ, there is no separation of church and state in our lives. There's only union with Christ. Everything belongs under the umbrella of our identity in Christ. And so as I submit to government, as I obey my leaders and authority over me, I do all of that within the realm of God's sovereign control over my life. He's the one ultimately I'm submitting to my allegiances to Him and to no one else. The primary implication of Christ's statement is that God always trumps Caesar. And so my allegiance is to God first and foremost. That's how I walk in God's supremacy. Another way I walk in God's supremacy is this. God gets our total obedience. God gets our total allegiance and He gets our total obedience. So when government forces Christians to disobey God, we go with God no matter the cost. There's a great example of this in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John were arrested by the Sanhedrin for preaching the gospel. The Sanhedrin threatened them and then commanded them not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus. But in Acts chapter 4, verse 19, Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. When our government authorities try to enforce on us rules, regulations that make us break the law of God or the Word of God, we defy. We go with God, not man. There are boundaries to our allegiance to government. And government is is someone to whom we submit in many ways, but when government says you must not worship, you must not do this, you must not do whatever that breaks the law of God, then you and I, we walk in obedience to God no matter what. The church is never deterred from praying, from worshiping, from gathering, or from spreading the gospel. We must do these things even in and especially in countries and under governments where those things are illegal. The gospel must go forward no matter the cost. During campaign seasons, we we often hear politicians describe our country as a city on a hill. And that's a beautiful concept describing the example America sets among the nations and the hope and opportunity that's available to our citizens. But that doesn't match the words of Jesus. When Jesus talked about us being a city on a hill, he wasn't talking about America, he was talking about the church. A writer named Jonathan Lehman, he uh, published a book recently called How the Nations Rage. I would recommend it to you highly. Jonathan Lehman says this, Just think, where do we first beat swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks? Where should love of enemy first dissolve a nation's tribalism? Where should Lincoln's just and lasting peace first take root and grow? Answer, in our local churches. Conversion makes us citizens of Christ's kingdom places us inside embassies of that kingdom and puts us to work as ambassadors of heaven's righteousness and justice. So that's why we obey God first and always because we belong to Him. We've been bought at a price and eternities hang in the balance. We walk according to the Word of God no matter what. So Jesus has given us some comforting direction this morning. Even in the most challenging political times, Even in governments very different from ours, leaders very different from our leaders, 
or encouraged by Christ to rest in his sovereignty, to submit to Caesar's authority, and to walk in God's supremacy. There are a couple of different opinions, a couple of popular opinions, about how Christians should engage with politics. One opinion is this, we should withdraw. (laughs) The ship's going down, it's everyone for themselves, we'll build a compound, everyone come in, and we'll just retreat from the world and do all of that. The other opinion is quite different. Hey, it's time to fight. We're going to dominate. Everything's crumbling. It's time to take up arms, whatever that looks like, and we're going to move into the public sphere. We're going to crush people, and we're going to make things better. But I think Jesus shows us a better way. A Christian's political posture, in a word, should never be withdraw, nor should it be dominate it must always be represent we must do this when the world loves us and when it despises us we represent this heavenly and future kingdom now whether the skies are cloudy or clear we represent christ as ambassadors of his kingdom no matter the situation so do you live as a representative of jesus in the political sphere Do you live as a representative of Jesus as a citizen of this country or as a citizen of your birth country? Is your political engagement reflective of a life of trust in Jesus Christ? Anytime I'm in a venue where someone sings God Bless America, I'm conflicted. On the one hand, it's it's a song with a powerful sentiment. Uh, I love it when it's sung at ball games. I think that's really special. On the other hand, the song seems to be a repeated request that's already been answered, if you ask me. God has blessed America. He gave her the church. He gave her you. Pastor and writer Mark Dever said this, Before and after America there was and will be the church. The nation is an experiment. The church is a certainty. Therefore, brothers and sisters, let us give to God what is God's. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you for your wisdom to us that guides us through the tumult. Uh, Help us this morning to believe your word and to walk in obedience. Help us to live as your representatives, as ambassadors of your kingdom in the places where we live. Let us start even now by praying for those who are in office. We ask that you would guide them in the work that they have to do, those who are new to their office as a result of these recent elections and those who have been there for some time. Lord God, our nation feels the strain of division and tribalism in every corner. Lord, we ask that you would Bring our leaders together for the good of the people, not for the power of a party. That they would work together for fairness and kindness and justice and for the good of her citizens. For all of our elected officials, Lord, we ask that in some way you would draw them to you, that you would put people of faith in their circle so that if these men and women do not already have a relationship with you, Lord, that they would come to you. 
That's better than them sitting in their offices, them bowing before you. Lord, we, we ask for their salvation. And Lord, we ask that you would help us as your children to be good citizens of the countries that we're from and the countries that we live in. We ask that you would help us to pray well, to submit well, and Lord, to understand where the boundaries of our allegiances lie. I'm grateful that we belong to a story that is absolutely certain. We know where history is headed. But until the day that we get there, let us be the kind of church that's a city on a hill. Let us be salt and light. Let us be representatives and influencers as we live among a people who put hope in so many tiny gods and know so little of you. Lord, forgive us where we have sinned in our attitudes and actions towards our governing authorities. Help us as we struggle with this sanctifying process. But Lord, I pray that the division that we find outside would not be found inside. Help us as your children, as brothers and sisters in this faith family, to love each other supremely, to be there for one another, to care for each other, to put the needs of the other before ourselves that we would be the kind of people who give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to you what is yours. Lord, we are yours. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.